Thank you, Praise Band, for leading us in worship and also for all your diligent hard work and the time that you put in for Inspire and for each Sunday that you lead us in worship. So thank you. Uh, that was wonderful. Just a wonderful helping us to get our minds right this morning. We're in Acts chapter 4 this morning, so if you've got your Bibles open or turned on there, and we're going to look at a very interesting story that really has implications for everyone in this room, everyone watching on our live stream or however you hear it. Uh, this morning we're talking about uh, spiritual purity. We're talking about authenticity. We're talking about uh, how seriously God takes purity of, from his followers. And so I entitled this message, Sometimes You Have to Shoot a Hostage. And when you read that, you might have been wondering, what in the world is that all about? And maybe you went and looked up that text so you would know when you got here what was coming. I don't know. But you know, uh, a few years ago, there was a movie called The Guardian. And it, was, uh, uh, it starred Kevin Costner and I think Aston uh, Kutcher. And uh, it was about the U.S. Uh, Coast Guard. And it was about a training program for these rescue swimmers. And, and Kevin Costner played a, a role about a, a man named Ben Randall. And he was a seasoned, kind of a veteran rescue swimmer. And he was kind of getting toward the end of his career. And he wasn't able to really keep up like he was when he was younger. And so he didn't want to retire. And the U U.S. Coast Guard didn't want to terminate him. So they just reassigned him. They made him become a trainer. He didn't want to be a trainer. He wanted to be a rescue swimmer. So he was kind of frustrated about that. And he, the very first day on training day, all these new candidates come in, these new recruits. And so he said, I'll tell you what. He said, we're going to have our first test. And this is a pass-fail test. He said, you want to be a rescue swimmer? He said, we put, we're going to put all of you in a swimming pool. And he put them all in a swimming pool. He said, you have to tread water for one hour. He said, if any of you, touch the side of this pool, you are done. Your day is over. You are out of here. And so he put them in that pool and they stayed in there for about an hour. And there's one man, he was muscular. I mean, he was chiseled. There was no fat on him. And I don't know if you know this or not, but muscle does not float. Muscle sinks. Blubber floats. Some of us might float more than others. But this man couldn't keep up. He began to get tired. He couldn't hold up. He began to sink and he reached out. He touched the side of that pool. And when he did... Ben Randall said, you're out of here. Get your stuff and go home. He did not know that that was the number one recruit. And later he had to stand before his boss and give an account for why he, he kicked out the number one recruit. He said to his boss, well, sometimes you have to shoot a hostage. In other words, sometimes you have to make an example out of someone to, to make a point. Sometimes you have to make an example so that you know this is serious. Did you know that God sometimes uses examples to make a point? In the Old Testament, for example, the Levites were supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Do y'all remember how they did that? They had rings on the Ark of that Covenant, and they would slide these poles through those rings, and those Levites would carry that Ark by just picking up those poles. They were not allowed to touch it because the Ark of the Covenant really symbolized God's presence. It symbolized God's holiness, and they weren't allowed to touch it. But one day, whenever David was king, he wanted to transport the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And so they decided that they would put this Ark on a cart, and they could make it get, fast, get there faster. So they're, they're uh, riding this uh, Ark of the Covenant through those desert roads of, of uh, Israel, kind of like our roads. They're a little bit rough, and it started getting bumpy, and that Ark started to slide off. And there was a man named Uzzah. You know what he did? He tried to do a good thing. He reached his hand out. He, he touched that Ark just to push it back on so that it would not fall off. Do you know what God did to him? God struck him dead. 
And whenever that happened, David became angry with God. But you know what the Bible says? David feared God that day. Because he understood that God was serious about His holiness. He was serious. Then I think about another story that you might remember real well. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In, those, in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, sexual immorality was rampant. Particularly the sin of homosexuality. Well, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know how He did it? He rained fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah and completely destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you know God doesn't rain down fire and brimstone on every city that practices sexual immorality? Why did He do that to Sodom and Gomorrah? He did it as an example. Listen to what 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says. This is what Peter said. In turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, God condemned them to destruction, making them a what? An example. To those who afterward would live ungodly. God made an example out of Sodom and Gomorrah so that we would know He's serious about sexual purity. Then I think about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And you can go back and look at this later. Don't do it now. Don't, I want you to be in tune right now so you can look at 1 Corinthians 10 later. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, was talking about the Israelites. He said, you know these Israelites, they, they went through the Red Sea. They saw God's power. They saw God's presence. They followed that cloud by day. And they followed that pillar of fire by night. And they saw it all. But a lot of them died in the desert. And Paul says, I'm going to tell you why they died in the desert. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Now these things became our examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. And then in verse 7 he says, And do not become idolaters as some of them were. Do not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. You're going to like this one. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as what? As examples. And so God uses examples to demonstrate the seriousness of spiritual purity among His people. And so this morning, we're going to see how God made an example out of a husband and wife in Acts 5. He used them to make a point. He used them to make a point about spiritual purity and how serious He is about it. So if you've got your Bibles open to Acts 4, verse 32, we're going to begin reading. Now let me just kind of give you a caveat. The church here is they're sharing their provisions. They're very, God's been working in the church doing marvelous, mighty things. And then we get to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says this. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power... The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Nor was there anyone among them who had lacked, who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses, they sold them, and they brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas, by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now what you see taking place in this church was not communism. What you see taking place was not socialism. I mean, 
uh, communism takes what you have and what you've worked for and they give it to somebody who may not have done anything to work for it. Uh, Karl Marx used to use a slogan. His slogan was, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. And that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But Karl Marx meant something maybe you and I don't really understand. It was, I'm going to force this out of your hand so I can give it to this person over here who has not really necessarily done anything to earn it. That's not what was taking place in the New Testament church. They were were giving willfully and generously because the Holy Spirit had put it on their heart. No one was forced to give. It was by choice. And one of those who gave to the church was a man named Barnabas. Barnabas must have been a prosperous man. He had land and he sold it. He sold a piece of land. And so he brought that money from from that sale of that land and he laid it at the apostles' feet in a service maybe like this. And he didn't do it for show. He didn't do it for accolades. He didn't do it for attention. He did it because the Holy Spirit put it on his heart to give it. And he gave it willfully. And so when he brought that gift to the church, the church celebrated it. They rejoiced. People looked up to Barnabas because he was such a, uh, an example of what we ought to be in Christ. And I want you to look at Acts 5.1. But, but a certain man... Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. You know, everything was going great in this church. I mean, they were sharing the good news of the gospel. They were preaching boldly about the resurrection of Christ. But Ananias and Sapphira. You know, this church was experiencing some severe persecution. But they were thriving. But Ananias and Sapphira. This church, they were sharing their provisions. They were meeting each other's needs. They were ministering to one another. But Ananias and Sapphira. Everything was going great, but, but, but Ananias and Sapphira. How would you like for your name to be at the end of that but? How would you like for your name to to be at the church was going great, but Jamie? Uh, The church was going wonderful, but but John. Everything was going marvelous in the church, but JB. You can put your name in that blank. Everything was going great, but Mike. Or maybe everything was going great, but Steve. Or maybe everything was going great, but, you know, um, Matt, whatever. You put your name in that blank. And I asked myself, what exactly did Ananias and Sapphira do to hinder the church in such a drastic way? Well, let's look back at verse 2. It says, he kept back part of the proceeds and his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? And while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own, in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Why have you lied? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then Ananias, hearing these words, he fell down and breathed his last. That's a nice way to say he died. And so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and, hurled, and buried him. And now it was about three hours later. And that tells you how long the church service ought to be. 
Three hours later, when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered and said, tell me whether you sold the lamb for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look at the feet of those who have buried your husband. They're at the door and they will carry you out. And then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. Now when you read this story, it might disturb you. It might alarm you. How is it that God uh, uh, took out a man and woman because they lied? It doesn't seem like the penalty fits the crime. But what was it that made this such an egregious act by Ananias and Sapphira? What was it that made God take such drastic action? Well, I want to share with you five things that I think that really will explain some of those things. Number one, Ananias and Sapphira committed an act of spiritual imitation. Imitation. Now, imitation is a good thing when you're imitating Christ. Imitation is a good thing. The Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But they imitated Barnabas. Now, they weren't imitating Barnabas so they could be like Barnabas. Don't misunderstand. They were imitating Barnabas so they could get the glory that Barnabas had. They didn't want to be like Barnabas. They just wanted the glory that he had. They wanted the glory of Barnabas without the devotion of Barnabas. Everybody okay? And that was about an imitation. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they saw how the church celebrated uh, Barnabas whenever he gave all that money from his sale of his land. And so they, they thought, hey, we can do that. We got some land. We can sell it. And we can get some of that glory too. And so they decided to imitate the devotion of Barney without having that devotion. So they said, well, let's go find us a real estate agent. And they did. They found a real estate agent. And they came out and said, hey, listen, we think we can sell this land for about $50,000. What do you think? And that real estate agent said, well, yeah, I think I can find you somebody to uh, take this off your hands. And so they put it on the market. A few days later, they called old Ananias and, Bar- uh, and Sapphira up and said, hey, I think we got a buyer. And they made a deal. And they said, hey, we, you know, we're going to make a quick deal, quick sale. And they did. And they had all this money. And, you know, maybe early on, they had planned to give it all. To the church. Maybe that was their, their heartbeat initially. I don't know what their original thought was, but it makes me wonder if maybe if they didn't intend to give it all, but then maybe they started thinking about retirement. Maybe Ananias said, you know, Sapphira, you know, we're going to be retiring soon and we might need to put some of this aside just in case, right? And then maybe Sapphira said, well, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, we need to get a new camel. One that has like a leather seat and a GPS. And so... Um, and then they said, you know, we've also been talking about buying a, you know, a, a retirement home on Lake Tiberias, and maybe we need to put some money aside for that. And so maybe they were thinking about all these things. I don't know what their discussion was about. But so, at some point, Ananias and Sapphira decided that they were going to conspire together not to give all the money to the church. And they agreed, but they, so they agreed that they were going to tell the church that they were giving it all. And in the back of their mind, they're thinking, who's going to know? They're not going to know down at the church how much we sold this land for. And we'll just tell them we gave it all. And so the next Sunday when the church got together, the music was playing and the, the people were bringing their offering to the, to the altar, maybe like sometimes we do. And, and uh, Ananias came and he laid that money at, the, at Peter's feet. And he said, you know, Peter, he said, Ananias, I mean, Sapphira and I, we decided we just needed to uh, you know, sell some land. We just want to give all the money to the church. And so that was a conspiracy. And so 
Let me just say this up front. Ananias and Sapphira were not obligated to give any of it. They were not obligated to give any of it. They could have kept it all. They could have given as little or as much as they chose. That was not the problem. Listen to what Peter said in verse 4. He said, while it remained, was it not your own? Yes. And after you sold it, was it not in your own control? Yes. The problem is not how much or how little they gave. It's the heart in which they gave it. They lied about it. They were deceptive about it. They were being hypocritical. They were not being authentic. They were being a hypocrite. You know what it means to be a hypocrite? It means that you pretend to be something that you are not. And that's what they were doing. They they were like playing a part in a play. You know, when you play a part in a play, you, you put on a mask and you pretend to be somebody else, but you're not really that person. You just pretend. And they were being hypocritical. And when you're a hypocrite, it's not you're not really the person that you're presenting. And Ananias and Sapphira were pretending to be more spiritual than they really were. You know, the greatest obstacle of the church influencing the culture for Christ is hypocrisy in the church. It's one of the greatest hindrances to us really reaching the world for Christ is hypocrisy. I think the reason so many young people reject the church is because they see so much hypocrisy. You know, hypocrisy has done more harm to the influence of the church than persecution ever has. And so hypocrisy is about imitating devotion without having that devotion. You know, the second thing I want you to notice is that hypocrisy is about perception. It's about image. We want others to perceive us better than we really are. You know, I read about a 12-year-old boy. He went to the dentist and he was waiting in the lobby and his, his first time he'd been to this dentist and he wanted to make a good impression and they gave him one of those little things you got to fill out about your medical history and some, for some reason they had on the bottom what your hobbies are. And so he wanted to make a good impression so he said swimming and flossing. <laughs> Isn't that like us? Hypocrisy is about deception. I mean perception. It's about pretending to be something uh, on the outside that you're not on the inside. Listen to this. Hypocrisy is being more concerned about what others think you are than what God knows you are. That's what hypocrisy is. It's all about pretense. And so hypocrisy portrays the spiritual purity in in public, but it's not present in private. Let me ask you a question. When you pray, do you really mean what you pray? And when you sing songs in worship, do you really mean what you sing in worship? Jesus said about some of those who, all about perception, he said, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They honor me in public, but in private, their heart's far from me. It's all about perception. Heard about a deacon who was trying to impress a group of young boys about the importance of living the Christian life. And so he was talking to these young boys. He said, he said do, you, do you know why they call me a Christian? And nobody answered. Everything got quiet. And finally, one, one boy said, well, maybe it's because they don't know you. It's about perception. Did you know that some of the most scathing words Jesus ever spoke were against hypocrisy? You know, whenever Jesus encountered somebody who was entrapped in sin and they felt the guilt of sin, you know, he didn't, he didn't really chastise them. He was compassionate. But it was when it came to a person who was hypocritical, Jesus spoke some very stern words. 
And in Matthew chapter 23, he records them. And don't turn to Matthew 23, look it up later. But I just want to read to you a few verses out of Matthew 23 that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees who were all about perception. And this is what he says in Matthew 23, 5. All their works they do to be seen by men. It's all about perception. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Now a phylactery, just, just briefly, was a leather strap that people would wear around their arm. And, it, and on it, it would contain a box, a leather box. And in that box would be verses out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And all uh, very religious people would wear that phylactery. And so the Pharisees would make sure their leather strap was real big and broad so everybody could see it. And everybody think, man, they're spiritual. That, look at that leather strap. They must be spiritual. Look at those, those garments that they wear. They must be spiritual. And then in verse 6, it says, They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues. They love the greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. And so these uh, Pharisees were all about perception. A perception of power. A perception of purity. A perception of prestige. It was all about perception. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. He said, Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, and then, and then uh, the inside of the cup, and then the outside will be clean also. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't, I'd rather the inside of the cup be clean rather than the outside, wouldn't you? And then he says in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. I think about uh, the mausoleum out on Highway 301. Every time I ride by, how beautiful it looks, but inside of it's full of dead men's bones. And so Jesus said in Matthew 28, Even so... Outwardly, you appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, hypocrisy is about perception, and it's offensive to God. Third thing I want you to notice, and I've already given you a clue, is that hypocrisy is about deception. Peter asked Ananias in verse 3, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? To the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. See, hypocrisy is just one big lie. Ananias and Sapphira wanted credit for something they had not done. So God didn't command them to give all their money. He didn't demand that they give all their money. But they said they were and they were lying about it. And they thought they were lying to the church. But they weren't lying to the church. They were lying to the Holy Spirit. And their hypocrisy wasn't in keeping part of the money. The, the hypocrisy was in lying about it. They were pretending to have a devotion that they didn't have. And let me just ask you, are you sitting in church this morning pretending to have a devotion that you don't have? Now listen, you might lie to me and I, I might not ever know about it. You might lie to somebody else in this church and they might not know about it. But if you lie to God, He will know about it. And so many times we think we can lie to God about who we are and think He won't know. Adrian Rogers, who I love to listen to on the radio, he was telling a story about a woman who, whose car was parked at a grocery store one day and her windows were rolled up, the doors were locked, and it was hot outside, and there she was sitting in that car, and she had her hands behind her head, kind of like this. And she wasn't moving, she was real still, had her eyes closed, and 
Somebody noticed her in the car and thought, well, maybe something's wrong. But they thought, well, maybe she's sleeping. And then uh, they thought, well, maybe they ought to go check on her. So they went over there and they, they knocked on the window. Ma'am, are you all right? And she shook her head no. She said, ma'am, do you need some help? She shook her head yes. He said, well, would you unlock the door? She shook her head no. He said, do you need me to, to break into your car? And she shook her head yes. And so he went and got something like axe or hammer or something. He broke that window out. He got into that car. He said, ma'am, what's wrong? She said, I've been shot in the head and I'm holding my brains in. And so he said he got to investigating to find out what went on. And he looked around and he couldn't see anything. And he looked in the back seat and he saw a Pillsbury biscuit roll in the back seat. And that thing had been sitting in that heat. And when she got in that car, it made that Pillsbury biscuit box bust. And that wad of dough hit her right in the back of the head. And it sounded like a gun went off. She thought, her, she, thought she was losing her brains. <laughs> so she's trying to hold her brains in. Adrian Rogers said, if you think you can lie to God and get away with it, you got biscuits for brains. <laughs> you cannot lie to God and get away with it. God knows the heart of every single person who sings in our praise band, whether they mean it or not when they sing it. God knows the heart of every one of our deacons, whether they possess what they profess. God knows the heart of every one of our connect group teachers if they practice what they teach. God knows the heart about the person standing behind this pulpit. And let me just share this with you. When I was studying this passage, I didn't take it lightly. I thought, this is a good time for some soul searching. And I asked the Lord, show me where there are areas in my life that are hypocritical. That aren't pleasing. Because I realized God takes it seriously. And God knows what my heart is. And I don't want my heart to be deceptive. And do you know where this deception originated? Do you know what, where this, this lie originated? Uh, Peter said it originated with Satan. He said Satan put it in Ananias and Sapphira's heart to lie. And he will bait you to be deceptive. Jesus said about Satan in John 8, 44. He said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in truth. Because there is no truth in him. He said, and when he lies... He speaks of his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So when you and I are being deceptive, when you and I are lying, it's because we are following Satan. Every lie originates from Satan. He is the father of all lies. Now the question is, why did Satan want to convince Ananias and Sapphira to be deceptive? Why was he leading them down this path of hypocrisy? Why would he try to lead you down a path of hypocrisy? You see, before, in the earlier chapters of Acts, he was persecuting the church because he was trying to destroy the church. But the more he persecuted the church, a strange thing happened. The bigger it grew. And so he realized he could not destroy the church from persecution. So he said, I will try to destroy it by pollution. I will try to destroy it by pollution. I will try to make them hypocrites. And so Ananias and Sapphira became Satan's instrument of deceit. Now, don't get me wrong. Everybody in this room has lied at some time. We all have. You know, sometimes we don't necessarily plan it or it just kind of happens. I'll give you an example. Sometimes a wife will come up to her husband. He comes home from work and he's, his mind's on, maybe I'm ready for dinner or something. And she walks up and she says, honey, does this dress make me look fat? And all of a sudden he's got to make a decision. He feels like he's in a moral dilemma. 
He's, I can either lie and offend God, or I can tell the truth and offend my wife. And it's amazing how many times he lies and offends God. <laughs> he didn't plan it. It was a crime of opportunity. But Ananias and Sapphira were deliberate in their deceit. They planned it. They calculated it. They premeditated it. This was a planned deception. And they wanted people to give them glory. It was a premeditated hypocrisy. And you know that we can be so hypocritical at times, if we're not careful, we will believe our own law. There was a man named Eli Cohen. He was an Israeli spy who was stationed in Syria. He was spying against the Syrian government. And so he took on a new persona. He took on a persona of a rich businessman who had just tons of wealth. And so he was uh, spying on the Syrian government. He began to infiltrate all their uh, government systems and he started getting all their, their data from them and started revealing it to the Israeli government. He was doing such a good job at it. He really enjoyed that, that image. And so he was really playing a hypocrite. He was playing to, pretending to be something that he really wasn't so he could gain intel from the enemy. And he did that for a number of years. And there was a docudrama that kind of recounted some of those things. And in that docudrama, it showed how he got caught, finally. And he was going to be executed. And he wanted to write his wife a note. And he began to write that note to his wife. And then when he got time to sign his name, he didn't know which name to sign. His name or his hypocritical name. He'd been doing it so long, playing the hypocrite so long, he forgot who he really was. You know, sometimes I think we can play the hypocrite so long we forget who we really are. We deceive ourselves. And let me ask you this. Are you being deceptive this morning? Is there a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde living in you? Are you pretending to have a devotion to God that you don't really have? Are you pretending to be more spiritual at church than you really are at home or at work? Are you practicing spiritual deceit? The, very first, the fourth thing I want to mention is that, that there's a detection of hypocrisy. There's a detection. God's going to find you out. You might think nobody knows, but God knows every secret sin. In Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord says, I, the Lord, Jehovah, search the heart. I test the mind. I give to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Heard about four high school students who decided one day they wanted to skip school and go fishing. You know, it was a beautiful day, and so they decided to skip school, and they did. And so the next day they went back to school, and they were very apologetic. They, said, they told their sweet teacher, very gracious woman, you know, we're sorry we missed school yesterday. We had a flat tire on the way to school and we couldn't get here. And so this teacher was very kind and very gracious. She said, that's okay. You missed a quiz yesterday, but I'll give you a makeup. And so she put all four of these boys, each one in a corner, and separated them. She said, I've only got one question for the quiz. Which tire was flat? You see, the deceit will be discovered. The deceit will be revealed at some point. And Peter looked at Ananias and said, You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, I don't know how Peter knew. The Bible doesn't tell us. I don't know how Peter knew that they were lying, but somehow God had revealed to them their, de their deceit. You might remember when Joshua was the commander-in-chief of Israel, and um, they were going to fight a battle against a little old city called Ai, and Joshua thought, well, this will be a short battle. We'll be, over, we'll, be, we'll be home for supper. No problem with this. Well, they got in that battle, and they got whipped by a little old city, Ai. And Joshua didn't understand it. He went to his tent. He began to weep, and he began to ask God why. He said he didn't understand what happened. What happened? We were supposed to win that battle, and we lost. And God said, get up. 
Stop your whining. There's sin in the camp. And God revealed to Joshua that there was sin in the camp. And then he pinpointed the man and the family who was responsible. It was a man named Achan who had stolen some things in a previous battle that God told them not to take. And because Achan had had this secret sin in his life, it was hindering the nation of Israel. Everybody paid a price. And so God revealed it to Joshua. Well, Ananias and Sapphira's secret sin was polluting the influence of the church. And so God brought it to light. And God revealed it to Peter somehow. And Peter, in his boldness, he confronted it. You know, Peter probably thought, you know, they've got land, they're wealthy. I mean, they got a lot of prominence. But Peter was not bashful in dealing with the sin. Now, I need to say this. Peter did not curse Ananias and Sapphira. Peter did not kill Ananias and Sapphira. Peter did not condemn Ananias and Sapphira. God did all the judging. God did all the correcting. And God did the cleansing of the church. And that leads me to my very last point. I want you to see the sanction against hypocrisy. The sanction. I mean, we might think it's harsh that God gave Ananias and Sapphira the death penalty. That seems harsh. But in in reality, we all deserve that. We all do. It's only by God's grace He hasn't struck us all. We all deserve the exact same thing. Think about what Vance Hadner said. Vance Hadner said, If God dealt with people today as He did with Ananias and Sapphira, every church would need a morgue under its basement. Can you imagine how difficult it would be for our ushers if God started striking people who were hypocritical in the church? They'd be busy. One preacher asked the question, If God struck down every hypocrite in the church, where would I be? And everybody started laughing. He said, I'd be preaching to an empty church. (laughs) And so they were thinking they'd have an empty pulpit. He was thinking that he would have an empty church. But isn't that just like us? We're always looking in the hypocrite for somebody else instead of looking at ourselves. So why did God take such drastic action with Ananias and Sapphira? I'm going to give you two real quick reasons. There may be others, but I'll give you two. Number one, God always disciplines his children. Some people question whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were really saved. I believe they were saved. I'll tell you why. Because they were part of the church, number one. Number two, they were an example to the other believers to be spiritually pure. If they were not saved, then it would not be an example to believers. It would have been an example to lost people. But because they were saved, it was an example to the church to be pure. And so God was using them as an example about spiritual purity. And so God disciplines His own children. Hebrews 12, 6 says... For the, whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. And if you endure discipline, God deals with you as a son. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? But, and here's the key, if you are without discipline, if you're without chastening, of which we've all become partakers, then you are an illegitimate son. So we ought to be thankful for the discipline of the Father because He's showing us He loves us and we belong And I don't have time to tell you how God disciplines His children, but I can give you two real quick. Do you remember Moses? And Moses was a spiritual man. He led the children of Israel out of Egypt. He'd done it for 40 years in the desert. Put up with all that stuff he put up with for 40 years. He's about 120 years old. The Bible says that even at 120, he still looked like a young man. And one day, God said, now Moses, I want you, they needed some water. He said, I want you to go to this rock and I want you to speak to it. And I'm going to let water flow out of that rock. But Moses didn't go speak to the rock. What did he do? 
He struck it. God didn't like it because he took God's glory. And Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. In fact, Moses died. That was an example. God disciplines his children. And then I think of another example that might be more relevant to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about uh, the believers in the Corinthians church. And this is what he says. He might could stand on a pulpit like this and say this to us maybe. He said, you know, some of you are physically sick. And some of you have died because you took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. God disciplines his children. And he's serious about purity. And so God used Ananias and Sapphira to teach us about the importance of spiritual purity. And so he took some drastic steps because he wanted a pure church. See, God knows the damage of a church filled with hypocritical people. And so to stop the spread of hypocrisy in the church, he dealt with it quickly. Like a surgeon, he cut out the cancer of hypocrisy in that early church. And I want you to notice how the church responded. Look in verse 5. Ananias, hearing these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And so what happened? Great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Fear was the result. And look at verse 10. Then immediately Sapphira fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out and buried her by her husband. And what happened in verse 11? Great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. Let me ask you this. What would happen at First Baptist if someone challenged the Holy Spirit and they died in one of our services? What would happen when we gave the invitation? I have a feeling our altar would be full of people. I have a feeling people would be getting clean and clear. They would be getting uh, real, real quick. I think people would get serious. You know, the fear of the Lord is a very wonderful thing. Solomon said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I like how Oswald Chambers put it. He said, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you will fear nothing else. But if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. Now, I don't know about you, but can you imagine the news permeating the culture in that community about Ananias and Sapphira? Do you think anybody would want to join that church? Do you think anybody would want to be a part of that church? Well, the hypocrites surely, surely would not want to be. But I want to tell you what happened as a result of all these things that were taking place. Look at verse 14. Move down a little bit. Acts 5, 14, it says, And believers were increasingly added to the church, multitudes of both men and women. Why? Because they had a pure church. People wanted to be a part of it. And God knows that. He understands the importance of purity. And so let me ask you this and it, as a means of invitation this morning. Have you allowed hypocrisy to creep into your life? Have you allowed hypocrisy to creep into your life so that it hinders the church? Do you have a healthy fear of the Lord? Are you living authentically? Privately and publicly. And maybe this morning, you might just need to do this. I think this passage really calls us to do a soul search. And maybe you, maybe you need to be like David whenever he prayed, Lord, search me, oh God, and know me. 
Try me and know my anxiety. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Maybe that's what your prayer needs to be. Lord, would you search me? Am I guilty of this? I don't want to be. Would you bring that to God? In just a few moments, we're going to have an invitation. Our praise band is going to sing. I'm going to pray in just a moment. They're going to come up. We're going to have our invitation. I want to invite you to come. You know, you might think, you know, I don't, I don't really know how I'm being hypocritical, but would you at least come and say, God, can you show me any area where I might be? Or maybe you know you are and you need to confess it. You know, if God were striking people, we wouldn't care what everybody else thought about us. We'd want to be pure. I want to invite you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the example that you give us in Scripture and how you demonstrate your seriousness about purity. But Lord, I also want to thank you that you're gracious with us, that you don't strike us all, that we don't all get what we deserve. We certainly know we're guilty. But Lord, just thank you for being merciful, for being gracious. And Lord, as we come to this invitation time, we just ask that you would shine your Holy Spirit in our heart. Reveal any area of hypocrisy in our life or duplicity in our life and just reveal it so that we can confess it in turn. We just ask that you would search us, oh God, and know our hearts. See if there's any wicked way in us. Help us to turn from it. So Lord, give us the courage to be faithful, to respond to you. And we ask this all in Jesus' wonderful name we pray. I know the answer to every question.